you know, if you move $250,000 over to them and you get your home mortgage through them, they'll give you a quarter percent discounted rate. Okay, so they're giving you a quarter percent discounted rate. The best thing is they're taking that loan. They're selling that loan off, so not even really lending you the money. Yep. And then they're taking your quarter million dollars, making 100% on it and graciously paying you 0.16%. So when you break it down like that, it's like, wait, I'm giving you 250,000. Okay, you're saving me a quarter of my mortgage. Yeah, but they're taking that 250 and making 25 yep. million. Welcome everyone to the, what did we say? I already forgot the 15th, 16th, the 17th episode of the Cassandra properties. No, we don't cut here. We just roll the 17th episode of the Cassandra properties podcast. We are joined today by Jeff Van Note, the mortgage quarterback. This is uh, one of those podcasts folks where if you're looking for value, you're going to get it. Uh, we have a lot to cover. We have Becca joining us today as well. How are we doing Bex? Hi, I'm good. Good, good to see you. Oh yes. Not really. <laughs> so um, as we always do, okay. Beck, you want to kind of jump in and, and let's find out what's made Jeff the entrepreneur that he is today. Yeah, I was just going to I was just going to say that. So um, tell us a little bit about your childhood. How did you get into the mortgage business? So my childhood was really revolving around sports. You know, I lived for football, baseball, basketball. I tried soccer. I hated it. It was too boring. <laughs> I remember like one time playing goalie, like, man, the action's going on down right. the field. I can't come out so far. So I stopped playing that. I played roller hockey. I played goalie, you know? So like, this is kind of boring again. So I always found right. myself like trying to stop people trying to score. And then like me going out there trying to score in all the other sports. Um, from there, I wanted to play in the NFL, so I like, you know cut basketball out and I cut baseball out. And what position you play? I played wide. So I played quarterback. Um, it was actually funny. So I played goalie because I was like chubby kid growing up, you know. But then I hit my growth spurt. So I actually <laughs> went from playing like center to quarterback from the sixth grade to the seventh grade, which wow. is like, unheard of, you know. You usually don't go from line to quarterback. Yep. And then I evolved into wide receiver because I had to get in the field. Um, but you asked like, you know, what made you or what makes you like an entrepreneur? How do you get into mm -hmm. business? And it's like anything else. Like anybody that wants to find a way, I believe will always find a way. So I had an opportunity to play quarterback. I was grateful for that. I learned the whole game. I had to know where everyone was. I had to know what the defense was doing. So that allowed me to see, like, an overall vision of the field, right? Like, mm -hmm. if I thought somebody was going to blitz, I needed to prepare for that to be able to, like, run away from them. So they didn't tackle me, right? Right. And then when I went to high school, we had three quarterbacks that were ahead of me. We had a freshman with me and a junior and a senior. And I'm like, man, well, okay, so next year the junior is definitely going to play and start. You know, I'm going to be competing with the kid that's my age. I don't want to wait until maybe my senior year to get in the field. And I definitely don't want to not ever get an opportunity. So where are the you know holes where I could potentially get in the field? Mm -hmm. And it was like running back and wide receiver. I had never played running back or receiver ever before in my life. But I'm like, if I could do these and consistently produce here, I got a good chance of getting on the field. And I actually thought I was going to be running back. I was on the scout team for running back playing against varsity. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, it was like, wow, you can catch the ball. Oh, our receiver got hurt. Hey, go in receiver. And the and next thing it. you know, my junior year, I'm starting at you know, wide receiver on varsity with a pretty good team. So I kind of looked at my opportunities ahead of me. I knew I'm not a patient person, if you guys didn't catch that yet. Most, <laughs> most people aren't, right? especially in real estate. Um, so I was kind of like, well, whatever I can do to get in the field as quickly as possible where I can contribute to the team, put myself in the best position to win, I have mm -hmm. to do that. I have to teach myself, hey, suck it up. Like, I do want to play quarterback still to this day. I wish I played quarterback, but I still would be sitting here not telling, you know, my sports journey. Uh, you have uh, 
athletics in the family. Yeah, so my uncle played for the Atlanta Falcons, um, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's really and cool. He played for one team for 19 years, 1967, 1986. You know, his wow. jersey's hanging in the rafters. Oh, you that's know? so, so neat. For that's me, so that was awesome. kind of yeah. like same that's name, really, cool. really awesome, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. So cool. did you, uh, I'm, I'm a big football fan. Mm-hmm. Sure. Did you get to meet any of the players? I mean, what? Um, so it was interesting. Um, so I would always go to like Giants and Jets games because they were close to being home. And I was never a fan. Like still to this day, I'm not a fan of a team. Um, kind of like, uh, I get inspired by players. I mm-hmm. like players that have certain attributes, you know. Yeah. I respect the hard work. I respect the God-given talent. Um, if I had to pick a team, I'd probably pick the Green Bay Packers only because, you know, the community of Wisconsin owns the Green Bay Packers. Yep. I don't know if you know that. Whereas all the other teams are privately held by, like, hmm. people for the 40 Tish family. Plus yeah, yeah. Big, big names aren't changing hands. So I feel like it's an invested interest. And, like, I'm a big, like, community yeah. guy. Like, I like the teamwork, camaraderie. But if you have an owner at the top that's making a billion dollars a year – and then, you know, the running back blows his knee out. You never see him again. He's forgotten about. To me, that's not kind of real teamwork. Like, you kind of want to help people along the way. So I feel like, you know, sports in general, you know, back 20, 30 years ago, people didn't change teams that much because there wasn't as much money in the game. Now today it's all about money. So yeah. I treat it for what it is. It's a, it's a money game, not really yeah. what it was as a passion project. Yeah, there, certainly um, there's been quite a, an evolution uh, in sports and in, in how that you know, uh, I'm a big football fan. I've always sure. been a big football fan, but it's become more difficult to hang in there. Uh, Very tough. Honestly. Very tough. You know, I was a Deion Sanders fan. Yeah. So you went from Falcons, yeah. then I believe to the Niners, yeah. right? Then to the Cowboys. Yep. And I think he retired on the Ravens, right? <laughs> so, like, you know, even look at, like, a Johnny Damon play for the Red Sox, okay? Comes You're, to the Yankees. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wait, you just went to your rival like the no that's one thing you don't do is go to your rival but yep. today brett Favre went from the packers to the vikings you yep. know mm-hmm. and it's like that's to me like that's not how i was raised like you know you, don't, you never right. join the enemy you know unless you have to <laughs> <laughs> you know so <laughs> in because i know you've got a, a strong tie to the community and you're mm-hmm. very civic minded as as are we and i think that's important mm-hmm. so why don't we talk a little bit about the 2008 crisis and what you saw and you know i would assume that those were some of the motivators and influenced you in different ways right yeah it was really uh, an interesting time i get the children i think about 2008 and like it's one of those things that like unless you lived like through it when you were like in the heat of it yeah you kind of just are an outsider looking in like you got your popcorn you watched your movie you know you watched the big short you think you know yeah. everything right mm-hmm. um i'm gonna give you a different perspective of like from the inside of my car the day Lehman Brothers finally closed its doors, right? Um, I was a senior in college, so I was, it was 2008, so I was 20. I was about to be 20, um, 21. I was 21, yes, I was about to be 22. Um, I'm sitting with my best friend who now works at Goldman Sachs. At the time, he was probably going to go to the NFL. We thought we were going to go to the NFL. I was an All-American at Fordham, broke a ton of records, really, really talented, naturally gifted kid. And every Thursday night, we used to drive into Manhattan from Fordham in the Bronx and get halal food. If you know halal, like, it was, like, you know, the place to go. Everyone did it. Like, there were lines, like, so deep. And I'm like, I think we had, like, the Garmin navigation at the time. Because, like, oh, yes. were, you know, phones just, like, started sending, like, picture messages back in the way, I think. That's so right? true, yeah. <laughs> that was only 12 years ago. So we wow. drive down and we park on the right side of the road in Manhattan. And mm-hmm. so you have like the double line and then you have obviously the other side oncoming traffic. And we're sitting there and we were watching like grown men 
carry their lives out of Lehman Brothers boxes, 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 mm-hmm. right? And now this is months after Bear Stearns had gone under, or like was in the process of going under. It was in that like during that time frame, and I was doing mortgages at the time, you know. But again, I didn't know what was going on. But that was probably the most real surreal moment in my life, where again I'm a 21, 22 year old kid sitting yep. in my car watching people that were making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, the, one of the biggest you know corporations on Wall Street, like dissolved like in the blink of an eye. And all I can remember thinking was, I don't ever want to be that guy. You know, like, mm-hmm. I don't want anybody to ever, like, have control over my destiny or fate. Like, if I'm going to go under, if I'm going to be on the Titanic, A, I'm going to be on the Titanic alone, you know. But mm-hmm. the captain's not going to tell me, like, my ship's going down. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, for me, I took that as I need to figure out what's going on. I need to figure out what caused this. And I need to figure out really how to help prevent this from ever happening again, right? So mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I was born an empath, right? So I yeah. feel bad mm-hmm. for people. And I really, you know, to this day, it's very tough to point fingers, right? I, I feel like when something goes wrong, like everyone has to hold equal responsibility. So people blame the banks. I understand that. Yep. People blame the consumer. I understand that. People blame the realtors, the mortgage. You know, people blame everyone involved. Of course. Yeah. At the end of the day, everyone needs to take responsibility for it. Um, and, and again, like knowing what we're in today I don't necessarily think the banks were wrong, and I don't necessarily think the consumers were wrong. I think it just stems from a real true lack of education and also a ton of greed. That started at the government level. Definitely. And like anything else, you know, they were ruled by the almighty dollar. But Mm -hmm. from a political standpoint, this is all based on what my research has shown over the past, call it 13 years now. The government was pressured. They were pressured into allowing everybody the opportunity for homeownership, yep. right? right? So when they come out and say, hey, 45% of Americans will never own a home. What can we do to get these people to own a home? Well, the first thing should be like, hey, let's educate them and help them get a job, right? Mm-hmm. Not, hey, let's give them a loan on a real estate <laughs> where they don't have a job, they don't have income, right. they don't have assets, they don't have the financial wherewithal or education to succeed in this home. And even if yeah. they can make the mortgage payment, can't pay the taxes, can't pay the insurance, can't furnish the house, you know, can't fix yeah. the boiler when the boiler goes, when the roof leaks, right? Mm-hmm. So, again, people don't, people forget that the government was pressured into creating these loan products, and what did they do? Hey, Wall Street, will you guys buy this crap from us? <laughs> so now, now, now Wall Street's, like, licking their chops, right? <laughs> oh, man, like, we can make a ton of money for doing nothing. Let's just create this, you know, BS loan product. So everyone has it. Let's make a killing. We know it's not going to work, but let's get the headline that we're trying to help all the dreamers yep. get their home. Yep. Right. And and they got ratings, and then they became bogus ratings, right? To continue they, they lied about everything. to fuel the, yep. the machine. And um, a lot of people made a lot of money through that that run. And it was we Up had actually down. yeah oh absolutely we had testified uh, as a company at hearings, it was uh, our local state senator, Diane Sabino, who was uh, really passionate about this. And she had asked if we would come down and testify at a a state senate hearing and kind of give the scoop of what was really going on. So we didn't do any subprime mortgages. We wouldn't be a part of it. Um, Because of what you had, what you had said, when, when you have people that were buying real estate, and they were literally walking out with money, 
So they were putting $5,000 down on four and $500,000 deals. Yep. They were getting 106 and 107% financing. Yep. They were walking out with 50,000 in their pocket. They were profit. walking out with money yep. in their pocket and nobody stopped to explain just what you said. If the water heater went or, you know, as your tax abatement burned off or as, you know, fees, taxes here, they do nothing but go up. Right. Yep. And as these little incremental things started to happen, it just became part of, we'll leave the keys on the counter and, and walk. So we had testified, uh, I gave this, I'll never forget. It was one of those, you know, you have those moments where you're like, oh man, you know, like you just, it, it sticks I've with had a you. Bit too many of those in my life. By 33, I'm starting to get on my secondhand counting. <laughs> yeah, but yes, I know that feeling. Yeah. We, we went and, and spoke and it was my uh, then partner, John Patera in the business. And we did all sorts of, of preparation and we went in and we talked and we talked and we talked and we talked and you could see the glaze come over the eyes of the panel. And it wasn't that they didn't want to listen. It was they genuinely did not understand what happened and how we got where we were. And at that point, the cat was out of the bag and it was too late. Uh, and, you know, we had gone and we traveled around primarily the Northeast and looked at different projects and different opportunities, you know, as these bundles started yep. to become yep. available. Left you know, them right. You were buying mm -hmm. houses in Detroit for $800, right. literally. Right. And that was on, the. you were the second person in the chain. The right. first person in the chain was buying them for $250. Yep. And, you know, you found entire communities that were built where literally the keys were on the counter, the boat was in the driveway, you know, like it was almost not like you're in a zombie movie yeah. walking through these communities going, it's crazy. What? Like an old Western. What happened here? Yeah. You know, New York being the epicenter of jobs, sure. we endured in a way because there was always the opportunity for employment yep. in some of these other uh, towns and outskirts of the cities where they didn't have that employment base. Sure. It was wild to walk through. People literally picked up and just moved to a different state. They packed what they could take with them, right? They yeah. got in the car and they moved on and that was it. I had a deal recently. Um, so I, don't, I haven't originated a residential mortgage loan since like May of 2017 and for many reasons. And I've lived the much pe more peaceful life since you know, from doing the type of volume I was doing. So it's been nice to take like a breath of fresh air and like really take a step back to look. That's all I knew for a decade, right? A, a decade, which I was supposed to have tremendous personal growth. I didn't have that because I was always focused on business, right? Yep. Um, I had a deal recently where, you know, past client I closed in 2013, referred me to the family friend. And I'm like, look, I don't do this, but I'm going to help navigate you. I'll put you at a bank I know. You're right. trusted. Like, you know, crazy times. We'll make sure everything goes smoothly. We review the credit, 680. No delinquent accounts. No derogatories. No bankruptcies. Mm -hmm. No nothing. 50000 in the bank. So, like, a very qualified buyer in today's market, right, right. in my opinion. Yeah. You know, ratios in line. The loan goes to underwriting and fraud guard pops up like core logic. They run a fraud guard to make sure like name aliases, like mm -hmm. prior properties on sure. making sure like you really hard. You say you are, and it says foreclosure 2018. So I'm like, gotta be the wrong name. Like I know your last name Sanchez and there's probably like, I don't know, 10 million Sanchez that are trying to buy home, you know, like, you know, right. in America right now, like there's a ton of Sanchez's it's gotta be the wrong person. So I emailed a client, Hey, the bank just called me up. Do you know anything about this? Nope. I'm like, 
are you sure you don't know anything about this? Now, it was a quick nope. Like, hey, no, that's not me. Usually right. when someone's not guilty, right. they're like, off. no, yeah. that's not me. What are you talking about? Like, I, I have perfect credit. <laughs> so I dug deeper. Turns out her and I believe her brother in 2006 took out like one of those option one mortgages, option R mortgages where like the balance keeps going up. Mm-hmm. 2006, they wound up getting mold in the house in like 2011. So they said, hey, we don't have the money to fix the house. What do you want to do? They listed the house for sale. They were told the short sale went through. Oh, no. In 2013. So they're like, all right, we're done. That's fine. Like, thank right. what they had to do. But it got caught in one of those areas where the banks saw an appreciating value. So the bank actually killed the short sale, never told them. <gasps> and the house didn't get oh foreclosed God. on until July of 2018. And you need three years for the FHA mortgage. So they were like 10 months away. And obviously oh. the loan got denied. Right. Not on the credit report because the loan company that did the loan was out of business. The worst part is Capital One was actually the, the loan company that purchased the default the mortgage and sat on it for that six-year period. Wow. So you have a client that literally wow. forgotten about it. Yeah. You know, talk about seven years later, they didn't foreclose for that time period. Wow. So, like, again, like, uh, people say, like, oh, it's all gone, forgotten about. Think about it. They got the loan in 2006. This is 14 years later, and you're still hearing, like, ghost stories. That, That's like, that crazy. Day. So I'm like, I've now, every time I say, I've seen it all, like, there's always that <laughs> there's one always extra time. Else, yeah. Wow. So like, again, wild. you think about it, like the aftermath from 2006 is still haunting us today in 2020. Mm-hmm. Now you've had a, a lot of success though. When, before you got into the, the commercial game, you had a lot of success in the residential game. You, you did quite a bit of volume, right? I would, uh, so I think success is, you know, indicate of the person, you know? So like, I think that I was very successful given the age, given the time frame. Um, I could have done a lot more if I didn't do everything else on the side, if that makes sense. Sure, right? it does. Um, and also, what's important to know about that is, of those numbers, you know, I walked away from different demographics. So I built a 30 to $40 million year Bronx business, and then I left, and I targeted Brooklyn. And then I left and targeted Harlem, changed my phone number, and then moved to Jersey, right? So I always tried building different businesses to learn the flow of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would consider it success, but... I think, again, given the times and like given how young I was, I think I could have been so much more successful had I had um, better management or leadership, believe it or not. Well, I, I have right here that you were voted three times 40 under 40 most influential mortgage professionals in America, all under 30 years of age. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a big accomplishment. Um, that's huge. Yeah, so, you know, it was cool. It was really nice. And again, like, I. I hope this comes off the right way. I felt like when I had come into the game, the rest of the industry was kind of like defeated, you know, like mm-hmm. a lot of like the real players that were doing business, you know, got knocked out or they left because right. it was hard, you know? So I always said like, as good as people like perceived me to be, mm-hmm. it was almost like perfect timing for me because I'm coming into the game as a 21, 22 year old, don't have any bad habits or experiences in the business, doing right. business the right way, hungry. Like if I make five grand this month, I'm yeah. having a record month. Meanwhile, these guys need to make 20 grand a month just to survive, right? So I was coming in point. all off of like morale, off of like a, you know, the football field high. Yep. And these guys were like, man, we're trying to survive. Business is terrible. There's no more loans. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. yes, those are all great. But, um, you know, again, as rewarding as that was, there's still nothing more rewarding like the actual amount of people I help. Like being in the Bronx, 
I pushed every legal lending limit possible, like every credit score requirement, you know? So like, mm -hmm. that's where my real value, like accolades don't show like the Miss Smith family that got right. denied that now has, you know, a million dollar home because- the success story. Yeah. That's the, to me, like that's the real success, you know? Like things that you don't see in headlines, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like having a thousand clients closed by 30 of which probably I still talk to on an annual basis, 750 of them. Like to me, like that warms my heart. So like when people reach out to me from 2008 and nine, still to this day, I'm like, wow. Like, You're you know, doing something. Yeah, exactly. That says something. It's so nice. You know, again, like going back to that and like I always joke around, I'm like, man, if I'm old, how old are you guys? You know what I mean? Because like, I mean, you were older when I was, you know? So like that, to me, like that really means a lot. And I wish the rewards in the mortgage business and even in real estate really focused on the impact people had on the community more so than the amount of business you did. You could do 10 yeah. deals and really impact 10 people's lives. We could do 100 deals where it's transactional and it's not worth anything. Without a doubt. Without All that a perspective, doubt. yeah. At the end of the day, none of us are going to be judged on the volume that we did. At all. No. Right? At all. And no one cares. Nobody cares. That's true. Nobody yeah. cares. Yeah. You have to leave a mark. You don't have to leave a mark, but you should feel compelled to leave a mark in your community. You should feel compelled to leave a mark uh, in your respective industry. Yep. And, you know, I, I was very hard on myself and I still am when I look, look back, I'm now 45 and young, so you were thirties and your thirties when it happened. Yeah. So you're my age, 33. Yeah. So, you know, you, you look back now and what you were kind of referencing earlier about, yeah, I had some success, but I should have been, I should have been, you have to go through that. Have to. You have to live through it. You have to experience it. Um, in order to reframe yourself sure. and become more intentional sure. in what you're trying to do. And, and as you become more intentional in what you're trying to do, you see the dividends explode. Forever. You it's know, and I don't mean financial dividends, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It's the, all those relationships yep. that you've made, what you're going to find is in the next 10 years, it's, you're, it's almost like it's it happened to us, right? Mm -hmm. Where you, yeah. you're almost like you wake up and for, decades you're fighting for to, you know to build a business and what the next thing is sure. going to be and then all of a sudden just pieces start to fit yep. right people uh as as life goes on they have a way of looking for the folks that stood up that did the right thing yep. that didn't make the quick buck and opportunities will present themselves and right. instead of having to go out and find that next emerging market sure. and and trying you know you always want to be ahead of things you always want to be vigilant in whatever you do but the, uh, the ability to go 2x, 5x, 10x, it just, it happens. These Instantly. things start to click yep. and yep. you can then start to pick the opportunities that you want to pursue that, of course, give you an opportunity to earn a living, but also allow you to leave that mark. Right. Right. So um, I wish you luck in the next 10 years. I think you're going to have tremendous oh, I success. I hope, I hope so. Yeah. I, I always say like, man, I was on a path. Like, I felt like I was going to die by 30. And then it was like. I'm gonna die by 35. Now it's like, I know I'm gonna make it to 50. You know? like, <laughs> there you go. I know I'm gonna make it there. So interesting. Appreciate that. Oh, so the the market, you know, we had talked a little offline before mm -hmm. before we started, and we wanted to jump into what I think is is really some of the value that you're gonna be able to bring to my audience here. Um, let's talk about what's happening in the market today. What are you seeing out there in the real estate market, in the mortgage market? What's happening behind the scenes? Give the audience a little feel from someone who's really dialed in. What is it that you're seeing on the ground? You no, know, it's funny. I never, um, 
people were like, oh, like, I'd be out. And I was like 23 years. Old, like, oh, what do you do for work? I'm like, oh, you know, I kind of just hang out. And, you know, because my audience obviously didn't need a mortgage at the time. So, like, if I'm hanging out at, like, a, like a club in Manhattan, I'm like, yeah, I do mortgages. Like, mortgages? What's that? Like, you know, like, they don't know what mortgage is, <laughs> right. you know, yeah, back so then. True. Right? So, I stopped telling people I did mortgages because I'm like, everyone thought mortgage people were bad people for so long. Yeah. For so long. Yeah. Right? So, I also never liked banks. Like, I knew how they operated, you know? Right. So, I'm yeah. like, I'll give you an example. Like, I'm like, I have a single mother. She's got four kids. And, you know, she needs this. No, charge her a point. I'm like... No, we're not charging her a point. You know, you're going to mm-hmm. eat that. So, like, it was always, like, again, me advocating for the consumer, like, protecting my clients. Like, I think I can go to any bank I want. My client, they're with me, right? Mm-hmm. So, if they get screwed over, this isn't going to end well. Um, so, I tell that story because banks cry when they have no business. Now, banks are crying they have too much business. Yeah. Right? So, now, what do they do? They raise rates. What does that do? Hurts the consumer. Right? They're like, yeah. well, we have more business yeah. than we know what to do with. We're going to pick and choose. And if you don't want to pay our premium because we're busy, mm-hmm. we're not properly staffed, we don't have an efficient system, you know, our client interface is terrible. Uh, our processor <laughs> only works five hours a day. And now that she's home, she's replying to emails once every two days. Like, horrible customer service, right? So, like, COVID really exposed all this. So, banks right now, both on the residential and commercial side, are looking for reasons to deny loans. And yeah. Yes, they are. <laughs> and, you know, and, I, know. Yeah, and I feel like no one's talking about that. One, because of headlines, right? Yeah. Obviously, oh, banks are setting record numbers. Banks originated mm-hmm. the most amount of mortgages. Real estate's up 7 trillion percent this year. <laughs> Home prices trillion. skyrocket. You know, like all these yeah. like crazy headlines, right? Yeah. But you don't talk about the person that like I spoke to last week that got denied by Wells Fargo, who's refinancing her mortgage, is oh, with really? Wells Fargo. She's going from 5.5% on a loan from 2009, wants to drop down to 2.75%, and they denied her for not having enough money in the bank when on one-family home primary residence, you do not need reserves. And she has it in her retirement account. So, like, wait a second here. Like, I'm confused, you know. Right. Wait, $150,000 loan, the house is worth whatever, $400,000, 800 credit score. Why did you deny her? Like yeah. there, when I say like there's no better borrower, like you could tie her up with the best of the borrowers that are out yep. there that exist. And again, like I've always looked at, so how I really made, made a killing to be honest with you was other banks fall out, right? Yeah. Deals like that. The majority of my deals when I started doing the business from 2007 to 2011, let's call it. Cause that's really that window of like tremendous opportunity for someone like myself, like perfectly positioned. Everyone else was the bad guy. I was there to help people close. So the majority of my business that I was closing that time frame was deals that got, that got denied by other banks. Right? Like the guidelines were like one or two points off and we figured out how to get it done. And we're back to those days now. Bank declination lists are gold. Huge. Yeah, huge. Gold. And nothing better than the realtor that needs to close a deal for the commission that calls you and says, I need to close this deal in two weeks. And I'm like, I'll close you in 13 days. You know? <laughs> um, and again, we're, we're getting back to that. So people, as much as they want to say, oh, we're customer focused. We want to provide five star. We're on social survey, all this crap, right? We don't want to get bad reviews on Google or whatever. They're lying. I mean, I'm being honest yeah. with you. Like, they're flat out lying, you know? And, and that's where my problem is because, again, at the end of the day, the consumer hurts from that. And now with, you know, the December 1st implementation of the adverse market condition by Fannie and Freddie, you know, your rate's going to be higher or you're paying half a point fee. So, like, my thing is everyone's squeezed in for December 1st. All the banks are going to try and close as many loans as they can, and it's going to be a ghost town for a while. Yeah. So um, one of the big misconceptions out in the marketplace is, 
people hear mortgage broker, like you said, and they go, ooh, you know, same thing, real estate broker, ooh. But if you get the right mortgage broker, what so few people understand is you're a bank's worst nightmare. Yep. Right? Worst. You're, <laughs> worst. you're the guy that has a pro, and I really respect you for getting up into it and understanding the guidelines as intimately as you do because when you're when you're able to connect to some, with somebody who has that profound of a knowledge you absolutely can cut through all of the nonsense and when someone comes to you you know people have the misconception well if i go to the bank direct i'll get the best rate False. it couldn't no. be further from the truth and they don't want to deal with you because they're getting their salary right <laughs> they don't want to close your deal right when you go to the right mortgage broker yep. who understands your file, understands your asset, and then can go out and find the absolute best lender that you know doesn't have maybe one of these uh, additional guidelines that are not Fannie or Freddie guidelines or there's a not traditional guidelines that's a bank-imposed restriction, you can find that thread yep. and you can pull on it. And the next thing you know, you're in the sweet spot with lenders that you never even would have thought of of pursuing. Yeah, your average person calls the person they have their mortgage with, the person they have either, again, ballpark their checking or savings account with, right? Yep. Or who their family member that they're closest with got their mortgage with. That's who they call. There's only like usually three calls. Or, again, you have Quicken Loans, obviously, in the millennial category, or you go online, like, best mortgage rate, yep. Staten Island, who comes up, okay, let's call this guy, right? Um but with that being said, there may be a bank out there that has the most attractive terms, the fastest turnaround times, whatever, the lowest amount of fees. Um, th that's really where the value is, right? So how I've kind of positioned myself is, you know, with the banks right now, knowing their weak spot, every bank's weak, weak spot are deposit accounts right now, yep. right? So my commercial clients, if they have money with X, X bank, whatever, and they have no mortgage currently commercial with them, I lead with what their deposit's going to be. The depository so, relationship. So I say, hey, look here, you know, my client wants a million dollar loan. They have 400,000 in the bank. Um, they said that they'll move, you know, 100 grand over to you before they even apply just to start that relationship. And now all of a sudden, the level of customer service that they get is 10 times better because they're required to bring in deposits. And with interest rates being so low, the biggest deposit accounts are all withdrawing or putting their money into the stock market. So their deposits on their balance sheets are so limited, so reduced that they're actually very, you know, non-compliant to the regulatory issues that they're having. Mm -hmm. So if they don't meet a certain threshold, they can't lend. So if they don't have enough cash, they can't lend. Now all of a sudden they're not making money on lending. They don't have the deposits. Now they're like, what do we do? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I want to slow it down for a minute and explain to the audience what you just covered in detail because the overwhelming majority don't understand sure. how that works. So when Jeff is talking about uh, if a bank doesn't have liquidity, then they're out of compliance. That That's not the bank's liquidity, right? That's your money. It's your money. Right? So your deposits yep. are what the bank uses in establishing that liquidity when they go out and they secure their lines that Correct. they're going to lend from. Mm -hmm. So when you're taking your money and you're putting it into the bank and they, you know, they, they're gracious enough to give you a half a percent or a if quarter of a percent. Yeah, I think it's like 0.16 right, right now. You know, it's ridiculous. Um, they're using that money to leverage the loans that they're then going to give you at the spread. And of course, the banks have to make money. I get that. But so few people understand that they have all the power. Correct. Right? Which is why there's yeah. a bank on every corner. Right. Yeah. Right. So 
the deposits and the depository relationship for a bank is is paramount because without those deposits, they can't go to a 5x, 8x, 10x, whatever that number is yep. to secure those lines to lend you that money back against your deposits. Right. I mean, the best is like a Wells Fargo, for example, where like, you know, if you move $250,000 over to them and you get your home mortgage through them, they'll give you a quarter percent discounted rate, right? Okay, so they're giving you a quarter percent discounted rate. The best thing is they're taking that loan they're selling that loan off, so not even really lending you the money. Yep. And then they're taking your quarter million dollars, making 100% on it, and graciously yeah. paying you 0.16%. Right. You know? So when you break it down like that, it's like, wait, I'm giving you 250000 Okay, you're saving me a quarter of my mortgage. Yeah, but they're taking that two fifty and making you know, $25 yep. million <laughs> or whatever the number is. You know? Right. So that leads us to the, the meat of the day right like the, mm -hmm. the the meat and potatoes of what i yeah. wanted to get into which is as the millennials continue to come into their own and uh i think it was what did we say 2025 right by 2025 75 oh, yeah. mm percent -hmm. uh of positions in these companies will be held by millennials mm -hmm. and they operate under vastly different rules yet we're not seeing the banks, uh, particularly on the commercial side, like Rocket Mortgage, and there's sure. some, some neat things that, yeah. uh, you know, some FinTech that's been deployed that's worked on the residential side. But on the commercial side, we're not seeing the banks catch up. You're actually seeing the opposite. They're actually right. slowing down even more. Right. So what do you see happening in the next couple of years? Where's the opportunity? And then we could talk about some of the things we chatted about. Yeah, I believe the opportunity, first of all, opportunity will always be with private money. You know, so when you have big commercial real estate players or, you know, I have, so I have different buckets of money I get from for clients. So depending on their needs, the time frame, I have everything from my, you know, guys on Wall Street that are big bond traders, mm -hmm. Indian group. They've never lent before. I got them to lend and they'll lend. Again, I don't want to use the term blindly and never say that. They trust my underwriting with their 24-hour due diligence to know whether a deal's good or not. It's pretty much just Googling the address and making sure the attorney signs off on it, right? Right. It's a legitimate deal. Um, so private capital, I see a massive, massive, massive opportunity over the next 24, I say 24 to 36 months. I said that also last year, but obviously COVID you know, extended that. Right. So my 24 to 36 months mm -hmm. is now like 36 to 48 months. Cause yep. again, we don't know the aftermath that this is all going to cause. We haven't even seen it, um, part in such because of PPP, PPP, in my opinion, just delayed the inevitable for so many people. Absolutely. Um, yeah. if you relied on PPP to get through the last 90 days, odds are your business is not in financially good health. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it is what it is. Like, I'm not saying that to hurt anybody's feelings, but that's the truth of the matter. And the sooner you realize that, the better off you can position yourself to plan for the next lockdown if that ever happens in the next 100 years, which I hope not, right? <laughs> so with that being said, non-QM, uh, if you're familiar, non-qualified sure. mortgage, so to give the audience a brief look into that, 2012 Dodd-Frank came out. Dodd-Frank to my knowledge, basically got five people that knew nothing about mortgages, nothing about real estate and said, how do we improve the mortgage business? And they came out <laughs> with these rules. It was like, uh, okay, so we don't understand how this works. The banks can't figure out how to read this document. The consumers think they're spending $100,000 more. Um, a plus B doesn't equal C, but this improves the mortgage business, right? And part of what they found was the problem, which was the problem, was what's called the ability to repay. So they basically looked at what's called your debt to income ratio, right? What okay. is your guaranteed income versus what are your 
minimum monthly payments inclusive of your mortgage, you can't exceed a certain percentage threshold. If you do, you do not qualify for a mortgage. Mm -hmm. Fast forward five years later, when everybody forgets about, you know, 2008 collapse, forgets about all the lives ruined and collateral damage done, they implement non-qualified mortgages into the market, which are not RESPA or Dodd-Frank regulated. They got around it by doing what's called a business purpose loan for real estate. So it's an investment property. It's a creative way of saying, we know you don't qualify, but because you're getting it as a business loan, your consumer rights are no longer valid even though you're still putting it in your personal name. So I see an opportunity for non-QM, which is basically your self-employed borrowers, your borrowers that have a ton of write-offs, your borrowers that don't show a lot of income, um, you know, your, uh, your Uber drivers, if you will, that can go out there and still have the ability to purchase a property with larger down payments, 20 to 35%, let's call it, factoring in the rental income from the property. The only problem is now that was a ticking time bomb. It still is a ticking time bomb. Because again, you're basically the people are saying we don't qualify for a mortgage, but hey, we have a three to five year run and then that's going to blow up like it did in 2008. So we're coming on year three. What's interesting about that is, is in March when COVID happened, they halted all non-QM lending, right? So it always scares me from everything I've seen in the past, but with the ability within you know a one hour window a loan product can be gone, right? Yeah. And the last time we saw that was 2008, right? So that kind of alarms me where guidelines start changing, um, cash reserve requirements, credit score requirements, literally can change on a dime. So you could think you have 10 loans in your pipeline and you know someone says, hey, we want 680 credit scores only. You have two that are 660. You just lost two loans overnight without even you know doing anything wrong. So that's why I believe non-QM is a good alternative, but private capital has much less restrictive guidelines where if you're going to buy a property and the bank's taking 90 days to close, you don't want to lose your potential $500,000 of upside and value. You can close with private money or bridge capital with no prepayment penalty, basically taking a eight to 12% interest rate, which is higher, but yeah. you're able to close pay a point or two fee and you're not losing your deal and you could wait for the bank to come in and fund your transaction at a 3% or 4% interest rate. So gotcha. it's not ideal, mm -hmm. but that's where I believe the window is. Anyone that could stroke a check for, you know, a couple million dollars within a, you know, one week period is going to have tremendous value. And again, they're going to be able to make a premium on their money for having that opportunity to help people save deals. That's where I see the biggest window, but like anything else, you know, at the end of the day, if people, got together and put the right customer focused bank together and still played by the government's guidelines and mm -hmm. regulators guidelines, but did things the right way in an expedited process. I think you're going to see a lot more uh, longevity in the commercial banking field. What you have now is again, like I said, the exact opposite where, Hey, we're going to take a month to underwrite your deal. If your deal fits into our box and our parameters, mm -hmm. right. Based on new COVID rules and restrictions. Um, then we'll order the appraisal. And I'm like, guys, you guys now just delayed it another 30 days, you know? So like, I don't want us to have like the perfect system because there'll be no perfect system. Yep. But I would, I would basically juggle the <clears throat> entire process for a commercial mortgage to make it so much more efficient and most, you know, I would say um, compelling for a seller to actually comply with what the guidelines are, right? Mm -hmm. um, I've had deals I've done over COVID commercial deals where the bank required 
letters and pay stubs from the residential tenants to prove that they were paying rent yep. and that their rent would continue. Wow. Yep. But like, that's not the bank's job. You know, the bank, it's, yeah. it's the person that's signing for the mortgage's job. You know, they have a 700 credit score. So you're asking the tenant who has no liability or responsibility at all. Doesn't make any sense. So when, when banks start doing that, that means that there's more problems behind the scenes that we don't see, you know, mm-hmm. at, at headline value, if you will. Yeah. Which leads me to believe that there are, you know, more problems lurking. Yeah. So we've been talking about this for, quite some time. Yes, we have. And uh, I'm telling anyone who will listen that if we don't shift gears quickly, we are going to, this is going to make 2008 look like a walk in the park. Completely. Um, But there is a place for the non-QM loans and there is going to be a glut of um, these big time investors. I'm talking like family office money, really big money where for generations, they've yep. had outlets, literally generations, yep. to move their capital. Yep. And as you see uh, markets changing as quickly as they are, particularly here in New York City, parts of California, yep. um, where those outlets are not available anymore, they are going to look to deploy that capital. They have to. And I think that um, you know something we weren't talking about publicly, but we'll certainly talk about it now. You know, We're in the process of putting together a really dynamite team to get a bank started mm-hmm. because we see this opportunity and we, we see um, that there's not only the opportunity in the market, but we feel like it's the right thing to do. There's going to be people who will need financing, good people on good projects sure. that won't qualify under these new standards. Like you said, you can go through that whole process. You could have qualified right up until yep. an arbitrary Thing has changed in the underwriter's guidelines or the bank's guidelines that the underwriter carries forward. And you've invested time, you've invested money, you've made plans, you've lined up capital, and overnight, you just don't qualify anymore. And that's tough. You know, um, I wanted to share uh, a story of a, a transaction I'm going through now um, uh, in Pennsylvania. So I'm buying a piece of property. It's a sizable piece. It's over 100 acres. And um, paying for the piece, a 75% discount to the appraisal, right? So, so, I, so to walk that through, so what I think would be cool for the consumer is you sure. tell the story, let me play bank and tell you how the bank oh, looks at it, idea. you know? Yeah, so I'll be like, oh, well, how about this? How about that? I'll ask the questions. You give me the facts and Got I'll it. be like, we're screening each other. Okay, so uh, properties appraising for 800. How um, much How much are you buying it for? 220. So you're getting a discount for $580,000. So right. first question is, you know, do you know the seller? Because how are you getting such a good deal on this? So uh, Are you sure you're not committing fraud? No, you know? of course. So That's the bank's first question. First question, yeah, right? So uh, we've we've got a, a system that you know works, that I've been in the business for almost 30 years, and sometimes money is not the motivator mm-hmm. for everybody. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have a way of identifying when properties go into a particular state, and that's an opportunity for us to raise our hand and say, hey, you know, we can do this quickly. We can do this in a painless way. Um, And uh, the other side of the table has, for other reasons, they want to clear the decks. So it's a complete, legit, complete above board, of course, transaction. Now, what's your goal with the property? uh, Land bank it for now. Okay. Just just going to sit on it. Just going to sit on it. Um, I am going to timber the property. So uh, there's a half a million dollars in timber. Wow. You know, had companies come out and look at it, legit. So you're buying it for 220, and you say half. So would you consider that as like an asset, or how would you? Yeah, of course. So it, it's an asset on the site. Uh, the way it works, most of the companies will do it is 50 uh, percent split. They do all the work. You do a select cut. So 
of course, um, it's not you're not going in and, and raping the land. You're sure. actually improving the forestry by t- trees get to a certain point, mm-hmm. and then once they've reached that point of maturity, they start to decay and they start to decrease in value. And then they, you know, like you're seeing in California on a sure. much broader scale, sure. where without proper forestry management, it, all sorts of bad things happen. So when you properly go in and you're a good steward of the land, you'll actually foster growth. You're clearing out the canopy. It's kind of like a haircut. Well, yeah, kind of. And you're giving an opportunity for the other trees to flourish. And every 20 years or so, this is a, a renewable commodity where if you're responsible in how you do it, and you, again, you don't go in and, and totally devastate the land, sure. every 20 years or so, you can go in and continue to harvest. So now this will, will this tree business, this timber business, be something that's every year? Or is it going to be something that's every so many years? Like, so you say 500,000, is mm-hmm. that... 20,000 you know, 20 20, a year for 25 years. No, so that, you get a check. Work? You get a check at, on, on the spot, right? They cut they, you a check. They cut you a check. So yeah. they'll take 50%. And then you usually you'll pay for uh, transport. They have to bring in these big skids and they've got to take out, you know, uh, the, the trees out. And some of them sell them locally to mills. Some of them sell them overseas. Sure. Uh, but you're involved in the process. So uh, at the end of the day, I'll end up with a check for a quarter of a million dollars plus or so minus. You're buying for 220 and you'll make a quarter million at least within the first two or three I'll years. I'll pay for within inside of 12 months. It'll I will recapture every dollar I've put into it. So because banks are obviously looking for, and I don't want to be the, the bearer of bad news, banks are obviously looking for income producing properties, right? right? Now, would you consider potentially doing that hard money bridge financing where you could put down, say, 10% for argument's sake, so $22,000, mm-hmm. take out a loan for $198,000 at, let's just say, 12%, make a monthly payment of $1,980, and pay off the loan once you get that quarter million? So then that way you can pay it off at any time just to make life smooth for yourself rather than waiting 60 days or 90 days to deal with all these banks and then understanding what the timber business is because they don't know what banking is and they're in banking. They're not going to understand timber. Right. Would that be a viable option for you to consider? Well, uh, are you still the banker or are we now <laughs> off? Because if you're still the banker, I'm going to so tell I'm a hybrid. You. I'll be whatever you want me all to right, be. You know? So <laughs> let's, let's stick with you being Mr. Bank. And Mr. I'm going to say Mr. Bank yep. or Mrs. Bank. I've got 793 credit last time I checked. Mm-hmm. I've never missed a payment ever in my life, ever. I have liquid assets, um, but the bank had come back and said, you have a high debt service coverage rate. Is there a house on the property? There is. Is What, what does that rent out for monthly? Uh, it's not rented out now. It hasn't been rented for a long period of time. Is it habitable? It, it's, it needs repair. Does it have electric and water running and everything? It no? has water. It uh, doesn't have electric. I'd have to put in a generator. Okay. So they've discounted that completely. They've okay. taken any opportunity for any income off of the, the table. Are you open to putting 50% down? Uh, I, I If I had to, I could, but I'm not. Because usually how we look at raw land deals, if the house is inhabitable, is 50% down. Right. Now, if you came to us with approved plans yep. with the build, then obviously we could probably be around 70% financing, which yep. is 30% down. So herein lies the problem mm. with banks. Bingo. Right? And now we're getting there. Bingo. So uh, hold on, Mr. and Mrs. Bank. Yep. Um, uh, the appraisal says that it's worth four times what yep. I'm paying for it. Yep. Your appraisal. Yep. Not mine. Yeah, yeah we ordered it. Yeah. Your yep. appraisal yeah, we, that we, I We've paid been using for. this guy since 1950. He knows how to appraise the property. <laughs> right. And I have uh, liquidity, and I can write a check for the, the, the property. I have 793 credit. I have multiple assets, and I've never missed a payment in my life. I got rejected not by one bank, but by two. Okay, so these guidelines that Jeff Beck and I are talking about 
these are the inconsistencies that we're seeing in the banking model. Wait, wait. And we're, we're seeing silver linings, though, because there is an opportunity to do something pretty cool here. So uh, as... Yeah, make your money back in one year and then some. Literally. <laughs> literally. Yeah. Literally. So uh, a, a traditional bank isn't going to offer the 12% kind of out-of-the-box nope. solution, right? And, of course, we have... Uh, other options, but it's infuriating to me. Infuriating. That it's insulting. The banks are unable to look past mm -hmm. the what they should be looking. You know, they, what they should be looking at, they're not. I right? would say like common sense, and there's no common sense in common yeah, sense. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like uh, robotic. They're right. just simply going right. through the motions. Yeah, if you don't fall into that box, like yeah. if your arm's sticking outside the box, sorry. Done. That's yeah. it. Move it's along. over. You can't mm -hmm. even cut your arm off. You just can't, you know, you, yeah. you're done. So the, the reason that the debt service coverage ratio is high for me now is we had been involved in investment projects mm -hmm. and COVID hit. Mm -hmm. Supply chains, lockdowns, Happens. nothing you could yep. do about it. Yep. Now, yeah. you and everyone else. Yeah, exactly. If I wasn't paying my mortgage on those properties, okay. Different story. No problem. Yep. Even if I requested a forbearance, yep. No problem. Yep. I didn't do that. Yep. I paid every bill. <laughs> I'm continuing to pay every bill. Mm -hmm. Some of the assets are in contract. The other ones are on the market about to go into contract. So there's a very clear short-term answer to this, yep. and it still doesn't change the narrative. And they don't care. They don't care because right now, like you very astutely pointed out, they're having liquidity issues, yep. so they're starting to turn those levers and push those buttons and flip those switches so that access to capital becomes more and more and more and more. Well, here's right. the biggest example of why I feel like people like yourself, right, and other clients that I have that, look, at the end of the day, it's the preparation to the deal. That's anything, right? So we meet up front. We go over the strategy. I give you every option, and I lay it out. I even have my clients sign affidavits like look, banks are taking 90 days now you're signing this document so on day 60 when you're pissed off i told you this right you know? yeah. but with that That's a being, good idea because it's like i want to close your deal faster than you do i get paid this is my living you're yeah. just buying ass you're getting a liability i'm getting paid you know um but i feel like the preparation is the biggest thing and i feel like also people really need to understand the value and trusting now banks again not to defend them because i don't like them just as much as anyone else does right I've had some of my best bankers not return my phone call in months. And finally, I'm like, look, I sent you a lot of business. I'm loyal to you. When you had no business, you were on the street begging. I was just throwing you deals because I felt bad for you. Don't forget about me. And they're like, Jeff, you don't understand. The people that are asking for the forbearances are the biggest shareholders of our banks. Mm -hmm. So, hey, we have $10 million with you. We have 40000 a month in mortgages. Our tenants aren't paying right now. We don't want to pay you. And they're like, wait. 40000 a month, you have $10 million with us. Like, yeah, and they know that, unfortunately, they have them by the throat. Like, hey, yep. if you don't give us this, we're pulling our $10 million. Mm -hmm. So now the people that you think would be paying their mortgages because they have it for the next 25 years over, that's just what they have in their checking account, wild. are the ones asking, you know, you know feel sorry right. for me, don't, don't make me pay the bills. So that's what they're dealing with behind the scenes. And that comes down to what's really important in moving the needle. They don't care about the guy at two hundred, three hundred thousand $300,000. Right. Forbearance, keep going, yep. you know. They want them to keep, you know, paying. They don't sure. want them to default six months from now. Yeah. But from the word on the street, um, there's a lot of people that have requested two and even three forbearances already up to this point. Well, look, there, there, we're going to pursue this. This is going to be one of what we call the big five, right? Yep. You know, we sit down every year and we reevaluate our priorities. Yep. Um, there is such a need, a screaming need for um, entrepreneurs, small business owners to access capital right now, yep. responsible borrowers, 
that whoever solves for that wins. Completely. And and wins in, in so many ways, not just wins financially. They win because they're going to be saving people in an opportunity at a time when they need it most. It, yeah. It's it's easy when, when people are rocking and rolling. Oh, and of course. Money flowing. The deposits are through the roof and everybody's lending. And, and we've all seen this now. I've been through two cycles. I'm going into my third yep. where uh, the writing is on the wall and you see – one bank starts to lower their criteria. They start getting a little bit more aggressive, and those eighty percent, um, you know, LTVs and seventy the, the, overnight, and and it just it gets, it's crazy how the banks um, f- will follow and compete. And the next thing you know, you're at a hundred percent financing again, right? And yeah. you're at stated doc, right? Stated, stated. Keep the market going. Hundred yep. percent. You know, and it just is. It's there's no consistency to it. So we want to bring a product to the New York area to start that is going to look at what I think matters now, right? Like if I was a bank right now and, and I had a, a business that was seeking capital, the first thing I would look at, the number one thing I would look at is, were you in business during the 08 crash? How'd you handle it? Did you pay your bills? Yep. Right? Yep. Were you in business? And if you were a Staten Island company, were you in business during Superstorm Sandy? Right. Right? Did you pay your bills? Sure. If you made it through those two, it's a walk in the park. This mm-hmm. is the person yeah. or the company that I want to do business Absolutely. with. They don't look at any of that. They're hung up on these it's ratios no and these things yeah, that the don't matter today. And and yet we repeat the cycle. Yep. Lenders get in trouble. Yep. Yeah. You know, Slap the, on the, the wrist. The cure is mm-hmm. what the cure is, and uh, you know. Best intentions sometimes don't exactly play out the way they're they're intended. And I, and I yep. believe, look, there's a, there's a lot of great people and, and great banks, and sure, I've sure. I've done a lot of business with them over the years, and some of them are just salt of the earth people. Uh, but the the machines are so big, and these unintended consequences start to play out, and then you you end up in a position where you're going, oh boy, right? So we think there's an opportunity to do something great here. Uh, we're really excited for it. And we, we think that it can change the way banking is done. I've always said that, you know, obviously relationships are the biggest thing in any business, especially when you're dealing with money and real estate where you're yeah. living, roof over your head, right? Big investments, emotionally and financially. If you bring banking back local, they yes. have an invested interest in lending. They know the consumer, right? And they have to have you succeed because they're a part of the community, you know? And again, usually the Green Bay Packers as an example. If mm-hmm. the community, for example, owns the bank and you go see your neighbor and he's making rash decisions or he's not paying back a loan, you have to like look at him every day in the face, right? If you know your your neighbor is at Wells Fargo, you don't care if he's paying Wells Fargo or not. But if he's paying a bank, you know, or not paying a bank that you own shares to, you're all invested in or whatever the case may be, as a hyper local market yeah. that we're in. Yeah. I think everyone wins that way. And it brings back the accountability factor. I think like anything else, preparation and accountability, I'm so big on because if you have that accountability, right? You have to perform. You know, when you are standing in front of everybody and everyone kind of like sees you naked, right? You're kind of mm-hmm. like, I got nothing to hide. In today's yeah. world, it's so easy to hide. And then like we spoke about earlier, you know, everyone wants a trophy. Yeah. So everyone was able to get a trophy over the past couple of years when, yeah, did they really work for it or not? Look, it's, it's tough. Uh, I, I think that, again, best intentions. I think that when COVID hit, um, we didn't quite know what this was when, when this thing still first don't. hit, right? <laughs> yeah. And you're right, we, we still don't. We have a better sense of, of what we think it is now. Right. It's not, not, thank God, it's not what uh, not some, some people originally had forecasted it would be. 
um, and <clears throat> actions were taken, and the fallout is we're just starting to scrape the surface of what that potential fallout can be. And if we're not careful, yep. uh, we can end up in a really difficult place. Because what I say is I, I hope that, again, if you got the PPP money that, that brought you to the next level and you're still surviving because of that, but you know if you didn't get that, you know, things are bad, right? Luckily, you know, I was 24 years old running a net brand. So I know what bad months are and good months are. And I know what two months in any business or industry that are bad could do for you, right? Yeah. It's cyclical. Yeah. Whether it's COVID or just a bad run or an mm -hmm. injury or a life-altering event, it could happen at any time. So I really hope the people that are struggling or were, again, bailed out, if you want to call it that, really take an honest look and evaluation on how they prevent this from happening again, because what if there is no bailout next time? You know, and I want people to be able to really plan and understand like anything could happen. And when you take your own rights away from yourself and you can't go out, you can't open your business, even if you're digital, you can't go into your office, you can't have your employee mm -hmm. and those very basic rights of entrepreneurship or owning a business are taken from you. Unfortunately, you're at the mercy of, you know, a higher power. And it's not a good feeling knowing you have to pay rent when you can't even open your doors. Well, it, it's the, the difference this time is even if you were an entrepreneur, right. you still were, were, Had to adapt. were put in a position where you could not operate the way yeah. you previously operated in that business. And even the most conservative yep. business operators, yep. you know, people don't quite understand if, if you're, you lose $20,000 in revenue in a month, right. Uh, or $20,000 of profit in a month. And you know, the, People were looking at it as, well, okay, we'll get some forbearance, we'll we'll throw around some PPP money, we'll we'll get through it, and then things will return to normal. People don't get that you have to make two hundred thousand dollars in revenue to match that sure. twenty thousand dollars sure. profit, right? Sure. If you're cutting ten percent in today's world, you're doing pretty damn good. You're probably lucky, right? Yeah. So now you stack a couple of those months together, yep. and now you're looking at sixty, eighty thousand dollars in profit, right? And Profit can be defined in many different ways. Right. You have your still. How are you allocating it? People that, <laughs> that need, that depend on you, yep. right? People that have yeah. grown to depend on you and, and you depend on them. Yep. Now you're talking about six hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars $800,000 in revenue that you have to try and fill the gap at a time when banks are pulling back yep. on Where's access it coming to from? capital. So, yeah. you know, there's a very real situation brewing out there. And, you know, I certainly hope that um, people can come together and, Stop the background noise. There's so much craziness going on out there right now. Uh, but we have real problems that need to be addressed and real problems that need to be fixed. So um, on that note, we'll, we'll see where this ship sails. If you're an entrepreneur and, and you're, you're struggling, um, it's part of the growth process. Right? Embrace it. You know, you're struggling for a reason. And the earlier you are real with yourself, the you know, less long the problems will linger. Yeah. You, know, you have to look at you know, give yourself a real approach. To That's hard to do. Look, it is. It comes down to pride. It comes down to not wanting anybody to know what's going on. It also comes down to, you know, basically you understanding what's going on. Most entrepreneurs don't understand finances, yeah. right? They don't understand business. They just know. It's shocking to me. Well, you never taught it, right? So it's like, yeah. hey, I'm a great painter. Okay, I'm going to paint this wall for $500, right? And then you never had to buy the paint before. You never had to commute there. You never had to buy business insurance. You never had to put gas in your truck because yeah. you were given that. Now you're like, wait, a car payment. Uh, 
actually, I have to charge $700 to make money. Right. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. but they look at they it just as don't think about it. they just don't yeah. add it up. They're great at what they're doing. They're great at their craft, but they don't have the business mindset. So mm -hmm. the earlier you understand the pluses and minuses, the much better off you'll be. Without a doubt. Yeah. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about still in, in the, the vein of, of financing uh, market disruptors. Obviously, we've covered COVID, I think, pretty thoroughly. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's talk technology. Let's talk about, you know, some fintech and, and how it's disrupted the residential side to sure. some extent. Sure. Uh, we haven't seen much of that on the commercial side. Why do you think that is? Old school people, um, long, they call it long money. You know, yeah. money's been there mm -hmm. forever. You know, very few new players are getting in. You know, guys, you know, like my, my best friend, you know, my son is his, my, my best friend is my son's godfather, vice versa. And, He's 35 years old. He owns a piece of 17 commercial properties. Started buying, you know, a decade ago. He owns pieces of a bunch, oh. you know. And there's just big groups, right? So it's kind of like commercial real estate. You have one guy that started out. He brings in his kids. You know, the kids bring in their friends. They bring in their partner. Then you have a group over here that owns retail centers. Now they start bringing guys in because now they want a piece of their action. So it's kind of yeah. just like a big growing circle. Um, <clears throat> also, like anything else, it's very hard you know, to really value a property, right? So I think people have to still have more of that personal approach. Like, hey, does a Starbucks fit here? Because if we put a Starbucks here, this is going to triple the property, right? It's a much more professional side of the game than residential real estate, less emotional, I would say. Yeah. But it also takes that in-person experience to understand the true value of commercial real estate. What can we do with it? You know, can we knock this down? Can we put apartments, buildings on here? Can we add another level? What's the price per square foot? What's the triple net? There's so many different factors that you can't understand it from doing it in a book. You have to do it, yeah. right? So like you have that constant growth and evolution. And like anything else, when something's hard, the average person's not going to go through that longevity of it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that deters people away. Also, I think that residential just took so much of a focus from 2008. People still don't understand residential mortgages. And I have yeah. some of my smartest clients that are commercial guys that don't know anything about residential mortgages at all. Like my best friend, like he's like, he doesn't understand because it's not his world. It's not his wheelhouse yeah. and it's still real estate and it's still money. Um, so as far as adapting, if you can get the consumer to adapt, you have to bring them value that they've never seen before. Getting somebody to adapt in general to anything, especially technology at an older demographic, mm -hmm. it's just not happening anytime soon, you know? So I don't yeah. think commercial real estate adapts truly technology for another 10 or 15 years. Um, I hope I'm building out a platform that people will be able to utilize in the commercial space. But again, I'm building it out for residential because even though residential deals are smaller, there's, you know, a hundred times more transactions, right? Mm -hmm. Much easier to get done. Um, I just think that as time goes on, most people would rather close 10 residential deals than one commercial deal. But on that one commercial deal, you might make a hundred times what you make on those 10 yeah. residential deals. Sure. So adaptation uh, and then user engagement. So we, we think that there's a place for um, all of the above. We think that, there, that, that the, the world is ready, particularly the, the Northeast market is ready for a return to the grassroots banking have, have institution. Mm -hmm. They're ready for more technology yep. in the space. Uh, we actually have a, a program on the real estate side uh, that we do also on the commercial lending side called the RPO, it's the Real Estate Portfolio Optimization, where exactly what you just said, if, 
if you don't know it intimately, right. you can have nine out of 10 of the best professionals in the commercial field look at a property and come up with a very similar analysis. Right. But if you pay a professional to really peel back the layers, there is value everywhere. Everywhere. Right? If you slow it down and- How many more parking spots can we add at 350 a month? There, <laughs> that's what it breaks there's down There's so to. many nuances that yep. the traditional formulas don't look at. We only take like four clients at a time at that level because it's such a it's deep dive. It's but when you start looking at buildings that are income producing yep. right now that are tenanted and we're slating them for demo, right? Like they're, they're, that's aggressive, but there's a place for it. Long-term value. Oh man. There's so many things though that if you're not an expert, um, you would you just wouldn't even think of. Yeah. I mean, it's beyond common sense. It's just things that you might only know from experience. So twenty five years mm -hmm. of, of doing exactly. that. But again, think about it. Like you're like, hey, I bought a house. Think about how much anxiety goes into that. Now you're talking about a commercial building with yeah. variances and architects and triple mm -hmm. net leases and water, sewer and all these crazy things, right? Like I actually yeah. had a client, it's funny, a commercial client that was that bought a piece of land here on Vic this is Victory Boulevard right here. Uh or? Victory is over here. Okay. Yeah. So bought a piece of land on Victory Boulevard. And they didn't realize it, that it was too close to the road. So I'm giving an example. They thought they were going to be able to build, like, say, a 10,000-square-foot building. Mm -hmm. But they didn't realize, because of the side of the road it was on, there was, like, a different exception yep. where, like, they could only build, like, a 4,000-square-foot building. So, like, their values that they were projecting, like, not for nothing, they're going to lose a half a million dollars because, you know, hey, I got this great deal. Oh, look, this is what Tony bought it for. And the next thing you know, yeah, it's like – yeah, you way overpaid yeah. for the land, and by the time you build, you're all in. Like, you're short, you know? So, like, little things like that. Like, I'd rather have a broker that knows what the heck they're doing, that's in the game, that's invested in the game, that says, hey, don't do this, do this. Even though it's not really your model, rather than putting, like, office and residential, maybe we just go parking lot or whatever yeah. the case is. You might make a little bit less, but you have less risk. Jeff, you get what you pay for. Hands down. That's every, in every aspect of life. That, that's <laughs> just, it, it's, it never ceases to amaze me how many people still rely, even for commercial transactions, yep. on people that they know, Sad. that they're comfortable with, that are, you know, a friend of the family or in the family, instead of hiring a professional that eats it, breathes it, What do you think, it. is that a fear factor? Or what do you think I think there's a, I think there's a couple of things. I think that it is a, a lack of understanding how deep the process goes. So you they can't fathom the layers and the sure. things that, where there's exposure everywhere. Like the behind the scenes you're That saying. they don't have uh, any sense of. I think that there is a sense of ego. I think that people... Right. Um, uh, you know, I, I know some really successful people that uh, never went to the next level because they didn't get comfortable with right. surrounding themselves with the smartest people they could in the respective disciplines. So I think that there's an ego factor. I think there's a comfort factor, a familiar factor of wanting to, you know, well, I know this person. How much of a difference could it be? Mm -hmm. uh, brother, mm -hmm. the difference is profound. You just gave me a funny story. So I have a client that I'm in the process of working on getting a deal closed for, and he always would say to me, I'd be like, hey, do you know what this means? I'm an engineer. I kept saying, I'm an engineer. I'm an engineer. I'm an engineer. I'm like, okay, but you're my borrower. I don't care if you're a dentist, <laughs> a doctor, a, a pilot. I don't care. You know, you could do whatever you want. Exactly. You'd be a comedian. Exactly. You keep saying you're an engineer, right? So like two months goes by and now we get kind of get the final 1003. Now the 1003 loan application, as you know, it's the same one from 1980. Like yep. they haven't changed this like four page, it's five wild. page application since in 40 years. So this is the best ever. Like I like to like push my buttons a little bit for my clients. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm like, okay. He's like, oh, Jeff, I have some questions on the 10 on three. I go, wait, but you're an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you, you knew all these that's things right. that I knew you didn't know, but like, yeah, you don't know where, where your assets go on the 10 on three. You know what I mean? So like, I think you're right with that, where people don't want to come off as like, they don't know something. I'm the type of person like, Hey, you're a professional. I'm going to trust everything that you're telling me, you know, do, mm -hmm. do, do your job, you know? Right. And I think more people have to rely on that, but because of the anxiety and because of what's gone on and the bad headlines in 2008, it's made us be underappreciated. Yeah. But mm -hmm. it's also unfortunate that every day that goes by, more inexperienced people are coming into the business, creating more noise. And there's guys like us out here and girls like yourself where, hey, we're sitting at the top, but we're not loud. So right. now we're not getting the right attention and we're cutting right through all the bullshit, right? Yeah. To get you the right answer. And the real people don't appreciate that because they're being told no. Yeah. Being like, oh, I'm not good enough. Okay, go back to this guy. You know, yeah. well, if it's too good to be true, yep. it probably it is, is. Yep. right? Yep. So, look, um, the, I, I'm gonna have to ask that you come back on the show because we didn't even touch on so many other things I want <laughs> to touch one. on. But like, yeah, we're rolling over an hour already. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you wanted to, to catch before we wrap this round? I would say anything. You know, like right now, the best thing you can do is plan yeah. and don't make emotional decisions. I know a lot of people, a lot of mm. friends, a lot of clients, very, very smart, successful people that are being impatient with having money in the bank. And I can tell you, I've had a lot of money in the bank and I have no, I've had no money in the bank, right? If you feel the need to spend your money in the bank, don't like keep your powder if, dry. If mm -hmm. you wait, I tell everyone, I wrote an article, like we're not going to see the worst of this until at least March of 2022. And that's based on, um, you know, obviously all the stuff prior to me writing the article. So I wrote the article when it came out in like April or May that with the forbearances and the rent, you know, halts and all that stuff, we might not see it for years after that, depending on what legislation does and what the courts do, but it never hurts to have money in the bank. I don't care mm -hmm. if you're making 0.16% on your money, making 0.16 is better than, you know, taking your life savings, putting it on the line and losing a piece of it. You know, yeah. people don't realize that. And the other thing is people that are buying properties right now, keep as much money in the bank as possible, finance as much as possible with interest rates being, you know, under 4% on both commercial and residential mortgages, borrow as much mm -hmm. as you can. You could always pay a loan off. Yeah. Once you put the money into the property, there's a very good chance you will never be able to access that money if you need it. Yeah. So that's the two biggest mistakes I've seen people make in the past, you know, six months, putting too much money down and then just not making the right decisions. Yeah. Thinking that, you know, the knife has hit the ground. And I believe the knife is still falling. Yeah. Look, I, I think that we're at a pivotal point. I think that um, some of our leaders are are right there. And if they can, you know, if they can move, move us over the hump, I believe that there is a lot of opportunity in front of us. I think that there's a lot of silver linings. There always is. There always has been and there always will be. Yeah. Um, but the next several months are going to be really pivotal. So, um, you know, on that note, this was a wonderful chat. And yeah, I really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having in. me. Appreciate yeah. you guys. You know, this we'll, was we'll, great. Get, we'll get part two back on the books. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, I want to dive into the tech stuff and sure. some of the other things. That's we exciting about. stuff. This it stuff is. is just kind of like boring, setting the tone, <laughs> letting people know our insight, what's in our mind. But yeah. the tech right. stuff is really where we can show people, I believe, our vision yep. and hoping mm -hmm. to get people to buy into what we see based oh. on experience. All right, man. We'll do very this again. Cool. Thanks for having me. Absolute, absolute pleasure. Listen, everyone out there, very much appreciate, as we always say, please keep the comments coming, the suggestions coming. Uh, we're having a lot of fun with this. We hope we're delivering some value. Uh, everybody out there, please stay safe.